today's episode will feel a little different. I'll explain why at the end, but you won't hear me interject or provide much commentary throughout. My goal is to stick to the facts as much as possible, as best as I know them. It won't be easy, though. To tell the story of this disappearance, you need to trust people. There are so many unknowns that if you don't take everyone's word at face value, you'll have almost nothing to go on. But in order for all of their stories to make sense together, someone has to be mistaken or lying. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a young woman who disappeared after crashing her car on a dark, winding road one winter's night in 2004. It's one of the most complex and unnerving cases I've ever covered, and it set the internet on fire with rumors and speculation. February 9th, 2022 marked the 18th anniversary of the day she went missing. Her name is Maura Murray. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. To be totally honest, this is an intimidating case to cover. There's so much information out there on it. There are entire podcasts dedicated to it. It feels like an impossible task to cover it all in one episode, but I'm just going to dive in, stick to the facts, and try my absolute best to do it justice. Let's start on the day Maura Murray went missing. February 9th, 2004. Maura is a 21-year-old nursing student at UMass Amherst. Classes are canceled for the day due to a snowstorm. They'll resume in the morning, but Maura won't be there. At 1.24 p.m., she sends an email to a professor. She hands in her homework assignments early and says she'll be out for the rest of the week. There's been a death in her family. It's a lie. There hasn't been any death. After she hits send, Maura packs up her things as if she's going on a trip. She takes toiletries, makeup, her medication, her school textbooks, and a few days worth of clothes, including athletic gear. 
She loads everything into her black 1996 Saturn sedan and leaves. Around 3.15 p.m., Mora arrives at a local ATM and withdraws $280, which is nearly all the money she has to her name. Footage from the bank's video cameras shows she's alone when she arrives and when she leaves. Next, she drives to a nearby liquor store and purchases $40 worth of alcohol. She's alone there as well. Sometime around 4.30 p.m., Mora leaves the area and drives north toward New Hampshire in the direction of the White Mountains. She has roughly an hour of daylight before sunset, but there's no telling how long it will take her to get to her destination because no one knows where she's headed. She's told a friend or two something vague, like she's going home for a family emergency, but her family lives in Hanson, Massachusetts. And they, along with everyone else in Mora's life, have no idea she's left. Based on how far she travels, Mora spends the majority of the next three hours driving. The next time she's seen, it's on the side of the road in New Hampshire. At 7.27 p.m., a woman named Faith Westman calls 911 about a single car accident outside her house. She lives in Haverhill, New Hampshire, along Route 112, a small two-lane highway with one lane traveling in either direction. To Faith, it looks like a car has gone over the curb, near a hairpin turn right outside of her house. It's now stuck in a snowbank, facing west. She doesn't know if anyone is injured. It's dark, and there are no streetlights. But according to police dispatch logs, she sees a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette. Minutes after Faith places her 911 call, a bus driver named Butch Atwood sees the same car on the side of the road and pulls over to help. It's Mora. She appears to be alone, but she's visibly shaken, apparently leaning against her car for support. The damage to the Saturn is significant. Both front airbags have been deployed, the radiator's busted, and there's a crack on the driver's side window. The car is clearly inoperable, but Mora seems uninjured, or at least Butch doesn't notice any blood. He asks if she needs any assistance, but Mora declines, saying she's already called AAA. Which isn't true, she hasn't, and Butch knows she couldn't have called. He lives close by, and there's no cell phone service in the area. It's a total dead zone. Mora's a young woman speaking to a much older, much larger man. Butch is in his 60s, tall and about 350 pounds. Rather than push the issue any further, he drives to his home only about 100 yards away and calls police to report the accident. This call goes through at 7.43 p.m., 16 minutes after Faith Westman's, so officials are already on their way. Sergeant Cecil Smith arrives at the scene just three minutes later. And Mora is gone. She's nowhere in sight. Sergeant Smith finds Mora's car locked, but through the window, he sees a box of Franzia wine behind the driver's seat. There's also some type of red liquid on the driver's door and ceiling of the car. He does a quick scan of the area, but there's no one in sight. When he walks around back, he finds a rag stuffed in the tailpipe of her car. Now, I wanna take a second to slow down and really walk through the timeline of events here. Let's say it took Butch Atwood seven minutes to drive the 100 yards to his home and call 911. 
that would be a fairly generous estimate, and it would mean he left Mora around 7.36 p.m. Sergeant Smith arrived at 7.46 p.m., meaning the window of time in which Mora disappeared is only 10 minutes long, at most. And for the duration of it, there were witnesses who could have seen something. For starters, Faith Westman was home. She could obviously see Mora's car from her windows. Her house was closest to the accident, on the inside of the sharp turn. And though this stretch of highway is basically in the middle of the woods, there were three other houses with views of the crash, each set back from the road. John and Virginia Marat were watching from their kitchen. They reportedly saw someone walking around the car and spending some time near the trunk. But the point is, even in those 10 minutes, there were eyes on the road, even if only periodically. And the window of time in which Mora could have disappeared shrinks even further if you consider the testimony of another witness, a woman who drove past Mora's crash that night. Though she was only known as Witness A for years, in 2017, Karen McNamara publicly revealed her identity for the first time. According to Karen, on the night Mora disappeared, she was driving home from work down Route 112 when she passed by Mora's accident. Karen slowed down, came to a stop, and looked over her shoulder to make sure everything was okay. She didn't see any people on the side of the road, but she saw two cars facing each other, nose to nose. One of them was Mora's Saturn, and the other was an SUV police cruiser with the numbers 001 written on it. Assuming the situation was under control, Karen kept driving. Once she regained cell service a couple miles down the road, she made a phone call. Based on her phone records, that call happened at 7.52 p.m. This places Karen at the scene sometime around 7.37, so potentially just a few seconds after Butch Atwood's bus left, and about nine minutes before Sergeant Smith arrived. I'll say that again. Karen apparently saw a police cruiser at the scene of Mora's accident nine minutes before police records say any officer arrived. Of course, Karen doesn't think much of this until later when she's watching news coverage of Mora's disappearance. When they ask if anyone has information, she immediately calls the police and tells them everything she can remember about that night. When she mentions the 001 squad car, the official she's speaking to acts surprised. They even follow up a day or two later asking her again, are you sure it was 001? And they're right to be shocked. See, that's the car typically reserved for the chief of police in Haverhill, Jeffrey Williams. According to official records, Chief Williams wasn't at the scene that night. It was just Sergeant Smith. Now, regardless of what's true and what's not, I can confidently say that Karen McNamara's statements are ignored by investigators. SUV 001 never appears in Morris case files. So with that in mind, here's what did make it into police reports from that night. 10 minutes after he arrives, Sergeant Cecil Smith is joined by other officials including EMS personnel and members of the local fire department. Together with Butch Atwood, they searched the area, and they focused their efforts on the area west of the accident, even though all evidence suggests Mora was headed eastbound down Route 112. 
they don't find Mora. And though there's snow on the ground, they don't find footprints either. Eventually, Mora's car gets unlocked, and officials find some of her personal belongings scattered inside. But her cell phone, credit cards, and backpack are all gone. Sergeant Smith finds an open Coke bottle with red liquid in it that he says had a, quote, strong alcoholic odor. EMS personnel spend less than 15 minutes at the scene. Firefighters are gone within the hour. And at 9.27 p.m., another dispatch call pulls Sergeant Cecil Smith away. Eventually, Mora's car gets towed and impounded. Meanwhile, back in Massachusetts, Mora's family assumes she's still at UMass. They have no idea she's vanished off a street corner in another state. Nobody bothers to call them until the following afternoon. Around 2.30 p.m., Mora's father, Fred, receives a voicemail saying his car was found abandoned. As far as I can tell, it doesn't mention Mora. He's working a job out of state, though, so he doesn't listen to it. But news eventually reaches the Murray family. And a few hours later, Fred's oldest daughter, Kathleen, calls and breaks the news to him. Mora's missing. He immediately calls the Haverhill Police Department. He insists that a search begin in earnest. It's been almost 24 hours since his daughter was last seen. But by this point, officials haven't declared Mora missing yet. They tell Fred their plan is to wait. If Mora hasn't turned up by the following morning, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department will start combing the area. Fred arrives in Haverhill before sunrise on Wednesday, February 11th. It's been almost 36 hours since his daughter was last seen. Around dawn, a ground and air search begins. 12 hours after, police ignored Fred's requests. Helicopters, officers, volunteers, and a canine team canvass the area around where the accident occurred. They check local motels, hand out flyers, and using a leather glove found in her car, a search dog traces Morris' scent up the road to about 100 yards east of the accident, and then abruptly stops. The trail goes cold. Night falls, and no other significant evidence is found. In the weeks after Moore's disappearance, officials conduct additional searches. More helicopters and canine units are brought in, along with the FBI. Nothing is found in a two-mile square radius of the accident. Investigators question witnesses, neighbors, co-workers, friends, and family. The inherent mystery of what happened attracts attention from media outlets all over the country. As it does, a brand new social media platform named Facebook starts gaining popularity, and articles about Morris' disappearance start appearing in people's feeds. Complete strangers from around the world like, share, discuss, investigate, and speculate on what happened. But before I go any further forward in time, I want to go back to discuss what was happening in Morris' life leading up to that night. Because one of the biggest unanswered questions everyone still has in this case is, where was Mora going and why? Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. There's so much about Maura Murray that's been overshadowed by tragedy. And in focusing on what went wrong in her life, people often ignore the rest. This happens with disappearances. When people report their stories, the missing person's character gets whittled down into a few vague descriptors, like nice, kind, beautiful, smart. Well-intentioned or not, it functionally turns people into tropes, which then opens the door for others to respond accordingly, to treat them as characters experiencing plot points in a distant, dark story, rather than what they are. Humans with a rich, sometimes complicated, emotional past. Now, I'm not going to gloss over who Mora was as a person, but I am going to move past it for now and focus on the moments in her life that for one reason or another have been deemed most relevant to her disappearance, starting with some trouble she got into before she went missing. A few months earlier, local police in Massachusetts are investigating a case of low-level financial fraud. Someone has been using stolen credit card numbers to order food to a UMass dormitory. Officials receive word that the culprit ordered pizza, so they travel with the delivery person to the campus as a part of a sting operation. When they arrive, Mora comes downstairs to pick up the food. Now, more likely than not, she's not the only person involved in the fraud scheme, but because she signs her name on the credit slip, she's the one held accountable. According to officials, Mora's super cooperative when they speak to her. It's also clear to them that she's young and scared. The total amount stolen is relatively small, under $250. So when the case goes to trial, a judge decides to drop all charges on one condition. Mora needs to prove three months of good behavior. But those three months of good behavior don't exactly happen. The weekend before Mora goes missing, her father visits UMass to go car shopping with her. Mora's 1996 Saturn hasn't been running well, so she hates driving it. They spend Saturday afternoon looking, but don't buy anything. In the evening, Fred offers to let Mora use his Toyota Corolla for the night. She accepts, drops him off at the Quality Inn where he's staying, and heads back to campus. Later that night, Mora attends a dorm party with some friends that has since become the subject of a lot of speculation. Not much is known about what exactly happens at the party, but at some point, Mora tells her friends she needs to get her dad's car back to him, which is strange. By this point, it's well past midnight. Mora's been drinking. Her father's sleeping. He's not expecting the car. 
she can easily drive it over in the morning after she slept and sobered up. The logic feels so off that some have suggested Mora might have had another reason for leaving, whether it was running to or from something. Before she arrives at her destination, sometime around 2.30 a.m., she gets into an accident. She crashes her dad's Toyota into a guardrail along Route 9 and causes $10,000 worth of damages to the car. Police respond to the scene, but don't administer a breathalyzer test. No charges are filed against Mora. She's driven to her father's motel room, and that's where she spends the rest of the night. The following day, Fred finds out his insurance is going to cover the damage to his car. Before filing the claim, though, he asks Mora to pick up accident forms at the Registry of Motor Vehicles. He goes back home to Massachusetts and calls her later that night around 11.30 p.m. to remind her to get it done. They make a plan to go over the forms the following night, but that never happens because it's the night Mora disappears. Another moment people point to as an example of Mora's emotional state at the time happened on February 5th, 2004. Two days before her father came to visit, five days before she went missing. That night, she takes a phone call during a work shift. Something about the conversation makes Mora so upset that when she hangs up, she just stares out of the window, completely disengaged. It makes her supervisor so worried that she ends Mora's shift early and escorts her to her dorm room. When asked what's wrong, Mora only responds with, my sister, and that's it. Three hours later, she breaks down into tears. Eventually, police learn that Mora spoke to her oldest sister, Kathleen, that night, although she never told anyone what their conversation was about. And neither did Kathleen for more than a decade after Mora went missing. In 2017, Kathleen finally spoke about the call in an interview for an Oxygen Network documentary. She told investigative reporter Maggie Freeling that she'd been struggling with her alcohol addiction. That night, she got out of rehab and her fiance celebrated by taking her straight to a liquor store. She relapsed and mixed sleeping pills with alcohol before speaking with Mora. I can only imagine the emotional toll this had on Mora. And Kathleen's health and well-being may not have been the only worry on her mind. Before Mora studied nursing at UMass, she was a cadet at West Point Military Academy in upstate New York. She met her boyfriend, Billy, there during her sophomore year and transferred to UMass shortly after. At the time of her disappearance, they were dating long distance. Mora planned on spending the next summer with Billy in Oklahoma, where his unit was stationed. According to many friends and family, they were very happy in love and talked openly about getting married. In the wake of her disappearance, Billy told reporters that they were, quote, engaged to be engaged. But while all of that could very well be true, it might not be the full picture. Mora's other sister, Julie, attended West Point at the same time as Mora. They ran track together and were incredibly close. When Mora transferred to UMass, Julie stayed at West Point along with Billy. They weren't close, but they shared a few friends and acquaintances. At some point, Julie caught wind of a story that made her think Billy was cheating on Mora. 
She spoke to Mora about it, expressed her concerns as a big sister, and suggested that maybe it was time for Mora to move on. According to some reports, Mora and Billy got into arguments fairly frequently. She needed to be talked down and comforted afterwards. Others have said they, quote, had problems, but not unlike any other relationship. On the afternoon she disappeared, Mora sent Billy an email saying she loved him. She received his messages, and she promised to call him soon. An hour or two later, she left him a voicemail that said something to the effect of, I love you, I miss you, I want to talk. It was the last phone call Mora ever made. But it wasn't the only one she made that day. That afternoon, Mora called a booking agency for hotels in Vermont. She also researched the Berkshires on her computer, looked up directions to Stowe, Vermont on MapQuest, and spoke with some family friends who rented out a condo in Bartlett, New Hampshire. She didn't make reservations anywhere, but when police searched her car, they found a computer printout of directions to Burlington, Vermont, and a copy of a book about hiking accidents in New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire and Vermont share a border, so none of these places are that far from each other. But if you ask Fred Murray, his daughter was most likely headed to Bartlett, New Hampshire, Growing up, the Murrays used to go hiking pretty frequently, as often as four times a week as kids. She loved the White Mountain, but Mora's destination is just one of many open-ended questions inspired by the facts of this case. First, there's the time it took for Mora to get from the Amherst area to the crash site. People have attempted the drive before in similar weather conditions, operating under the assumption that Mora took the most direct route. It took them an hour less than it theoretically took Mora. Of course, the estimates for Mora's drive could be off. She also could have taken back roads or just been driving slowly, but it's possible she stopped someplace along the way for gas, for food, to account for that missing time. And there's no telling who she might have met or who might have followed her if she did. Then there's the red truck. A witness in Haverhill reported seeing a suspicious red truck on the night Mora went missing. While walking to the Swiftwater General Store, the truck passed by her and slowed down for some reason. It was too dark to see the passengers. As she got closer, it took off up the hill and out of sight. She saw it again soon after, idling outside the general store. When she stepped into the lights of the parking lot, the driver sped off down the road in the direction of Mora's accident. The woman went inside and asked the store owner about the truck, and they said no one had come in. It wasn't long before a police cruiser and an ambulance drove by headed in the same direction. The witness told reporters, the only way I can describe the truck is that it looked like someone who was delivering wood. There's also Jeffrey Williams, the chief of police whose car Karen McNamara, AKA Witness A, claimed to have seen nose to nose with Mora's before police officially arrived at the scene. Chief Williams has since been arrested and charged with driving while intoxicated and disobeying orders. While getting pulled over for speeding, he drunkenly tried to get away by driving even faster while his own officer pursued him. And of course, there's the voicemail. 
The day after Mora disappeared, Billy Roush turned off his phone as he boarded a plane to New Hampshire to assist in the search efforts. Shortly after he did, he received a voicemail from an unknown number. It was short and wordless. He later told reporters, quote, I could only hear breathing. And then towards the end of the voicemail, I heard what appeared to be crying and then a whimper, which I'm certain was Mora. Officials later traced the number to an AT&T calling card. Coincidentally, Billy's mother had given Mora two AT&T calling cards as a gift a few months earlier, but Haverhill police later claimed they traced the calling card itself back to the American Red Cross. And so they shut the book on it, even though according to Billy's mother, Sharon, multiple other private investigators and law enforcement officers have tried and failed to trace the calling card. There's also the question of whether Mora packed up her room or not. Initial reports stated that she did. Her stuff was found in boxes when officials arrived at the dorm, but it's unclear if she packed those boxes before leaving or if she just never unpacked them after moving in. And the boxes aren't the only inconsistency that appeared in papers. In the wake of Mora's disappearance, news outlets reported a letter she left behind in her dorm room, addressed to Billy. The contents were never revealed, but the implication was that it may have been a suicide note. According to Billy though, he was with the officers when they searched Mora's dorm room and there was no letter. It didn't exist. Someone, either the police or a reporter made it up. And the list of strange details and unusual coincidences just keeps continuing. Like how police dogs tracked Mora's scent 100 yards to the east of the accident, placing her somewhere in front of Butch Atwood's house, the last person to see Mora alive. Or how Faith Westman said she saw a man with a cigarette in Mora's car, but has since altered her testimony to say it was a girl sitting in the car with a red cell phone light or how there were three men who were supposed to work at Loon Mountain that night and never showed up. Their commute should have taken them right past Mora's accident. Or how a month after Mora goes missing, another young woman named Brianna Maitland disappears only about 97 miles away in Montgomery, Vermont. Like Mora, her car's found abandoned. All of this information, some of which could be misinformation, is before I even mention that in late 2004, a stranger allegedly approaches Fred Murray with a story and a potential piece of evidence. He gives Fred a rusted stained knife and tells him, I think my brother might've killed your daughter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Sometime in late 2004, a man apparently calls Fred Murray with news about his daughter's disappearance. He thinks his brother may have been involved. According to the man, when Mora went missing, his brother lived in an A-frame house less than a mile from the crash. After that night, he remembers his brother acting really strange. And recently, he found a bloodied knife in the glove compartment of his brother's car. After this call, the man finds a way to get Fred the knife. It's rusted and stained a reddish-brown color. Fred mails it to New Hampshire police, along with a note explaining everything the man told him. Days later, state police send a confirmation message saying they've received his package. Fred never hears anything else about it. The authorities never follow up or release any lab test results. A few months later, Fred asks officials to release all of Morris' case files, but his request is denied. And Fred's frustrations around what he's not being told only increase when he finds out that a backpack matching the description of Mora's was possibly found in the woods not far from where she went missing. To this day, nobody knows for sure if there's any truth to it. All authorities have said in reference to the bag reportedly being found is, quote, we are aware of the backpack. And that's it. But in October 2006, Fred and a team of volunteers arrange a search of the A-frame house that belonged to the man whose brother implicated him, the owner of the knife. Cadaver dogs are brought into the house. They become active around a closet upstairs, indicating human remains might have been stored there. Private investigators cut two pieces of stained carpet from the closet and then send one to New Hampshire State Police. Once again, they don't hear back. But in 2016, private investigators return to the A-frame house and find something they overlooked the first time. Stains of what appears to be blood on the walls of the closet. They take samples back with them. A year later, private lab tests reveal that the stains on the wood are blood, human blood, from two individuals, one of whom technicians confirm was male. The other, inconclusive. Unfortunately, when the wood chips are sent for DNA testing, experts are unable to determine if the blood belongs to Mora. The sample is too small, and the DNA is too degraded, so it's impossible to tell. Four years later, in September 2021, New Hampshire State Police release a statement saying that remains were found 25 miles east of Mora's accident in Lincoln, New Hampshire. The Murrays hold their breath with anticipation, but in November, 2021, not long before this episode recorded, police revealed it wasn't Mora. 
whoever it was, died sometime between the years 1774 and 1942. Which means for the Murrays, the uncertainty continues. And so does the mystery. For better and worse, Mora's disappearance hasn't struggled with a lack of publicity. It never really leaves the news cycle. There are so many blogs, forums, websites, videos, documentaries, and podcasts dedicated to her case that it just keeps popping up. The results have been mixed, especially on the internet, where wild and disgusting accusations have festered and spread and they continue to haunt Mora's family and legacy to this day. Now, I'm going to debunk some of the most toxic theories surrounding this case. It's important to get the facts straightened out. But more importantly, I want to spend some time talking about Mora and what the Murray family has been through since she disappeared. Rather than do it alone, though, I'll be speaking with someone who knows much better than I do. Mora's older sister, Julie Murray. I'll be interviewing her in an episode that will release next week. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Connor Sampson with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear other stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.